Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. Kidnapped as a young girl and sold into slavery in a foreign land, Karam Sultan captured the heart of a king and transformed the course of an empire. The end. Let's talk about Harem Sultan, otherwise known as Empress Roxalana. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1502, Henry VII was the King of England, and his son, Henry VIII, our favorite around here, since the sarcasm, was only 11 years old. Catherine of Aragon had just married Henry VIII's brother Arthur, the Prince of Wales. Her parents, Ferdinand and Isabella, were ruling a newly unified Spain, and Isabella had just sent Christopher Columbus on his fourth, final, and ultimately fatal visit to the New World. China was in the middle of the Ming Dynasty, and Leonardo da Vinci had just become the chief military engineer for Cesare Borgia, brother of Lucretia Borgia. Died this year, unfortunately, Arthur, Prince of Wales. See episode 22 of the History Chicks podcast for how his death changed the course of history. Also that year, Anastasia, or maybe Alexandra, family name unknown, was probably born in Ruthenia, which was then within the Kingdom of Poland, but now is located within Ukraine. Some sources say she was the daughter of a priest, others that this is an afterfact to give her story some spice, but we'll never know because her entire childhood is shrouded in mystery. At some point in her early teens, Anastasia, why don't we go with that, was kidnapped from her village in a raid by the Tartars. We're only a couple of decades into a 300-year tradition of the Tartars roaming the left third of what is now Russia, Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Belarus, and parts of Poland, and abducting people to funnel into the slave trade. As many as 20,000 a year, according to some estimates, although there was one banner year that you would honestly hate to be alive for where the numbers seemed to be 400,000 slaves taken. That doesn't account, in fact, for the people who died trying to prevent their loved ones being taken, nor those who died en route to the slave markets of Kaffa and beyond. They were typically force-marched at a great pace for fear of pursuit. This wasn't a political affair. The sale of slaves was literally the economy of the Crimean Tartars. At the slave market, these poor people were bought by the lot and then sorted into classifications and dispatched from there to Persia, or in Anastasia's case, to the Ottoman Empire. The vast majority of men were used by the Navy there for galley service. Rowing killed so many slaves that there was always a need for replacements to be slotted in as they died, and most women were sold into assorted domestic service. Let's leave it there. But before the general sale, high officials went through and pulled out extraordinary physical specimens. The strongest men to be trained to become janissaries, these crack strong troops of the Ottoman army. Some places the Tartars overran had an agreement where they had to pay literally a tax in children every year. And these children were also drafted into the Janissaries. And the loveliest women were to be sent to the harems of high officials in Constantinople. Anastasia was quite beautiful, with striking red hair, and fell easily into this latter category, and was taken into service in the household of the Sultan's granddaughter, and given eventually a new name, Hurem, meaning the cheerful one. Was she, though? Think about the trauma she's just been through. Uh, maybe she just had the opposite of RBF or probably was intelligent enough to fake it until she made it. It's really her only strategy. She didn't have any way to escape. The harem was in a palace called literally the Old Palace. The New Palace was where the Sultan lived, where government official business happened. Um, but in the Old Palace, this glorious building, lived hundreds of women, mothers, daughters, aunts, sisters of sultans, servants, and of course, slaves. In addition to their, quote, betters, those in the last two categories that were deemed worthy of further attention received quite a thorough education. Religious instruction, first and foremost, 
training in languages, in crafts, in dancing, in etiquette. They were taught history and geography. They had access to a extensive library. The women in the harem lived in the kind of luxury we can only dream of. Their every material want was present from clothes to furnishings to food. In fact, they had every luxury but that of liberty. No going out. They were guarded 24 hours a day by eunuchs, men who had been castrated to eliminate the threat of sexual rivalry with the sultan. Because this is why a lot of the women were even in the building in the first place. And then there was the advanced program, graduate school. Um, Possibly, probably the most important from the perspective of the empire. What is this program? Well, not to put too fine a point on it, the production of sons. Sultans of the recent past had run into some difficulties by choosing women from prominent Ottoman families. It's a loyalty issue within the empire. Um, Remember that court at Versailles, which was mainly a distraction for the noble families, you know, get them to fight over who hands the king his underwear and They just don't have time to plot a coup. Well, kind of the same strategy. Only enslaved women were allowed to bear heirs for the sultan because they didn't have any family loyalty that mattered. Sultans of the past had also married foreign princesses, but typically these were carefully childless marriages for the same reason. Who's to say that a foreign princess and her son might not have equal loyalty to the foreign power and therefore be a threat to the future of the Ottoman Empire? Once you had a child by the sultan, you were in sort of the safest place you could possibly be. You could not be sold, and upon your master's death, you would be automatically freed. You would be a free person. So practicalities aside, distasteful as they were, the fact that you are literally there as a toy first and then a factory second, that's really the best you could hope for. That was the ideal situation had you been a person stolen from your village and carted to a foreign land. And each woman in this system would only bear one son because it was her job to become her son's advocate as the candidate to become the heir because the Ottomans sure had a brutal accession policy, which boils down to take it if you can. It doesn't really matter if you're the oldest son, like in Europe, gather your supporters and take over. Why don't you, you know, see if you can hold it. The current sultan, Salim, had not only violently dethroned his own father, but it had his brothers, older brothers, might I say, and all of their sons executed as soon as he took office. We will have no growing resentments around here. He was known as Salim the Grim. He applied the policy around the household too. A curse from the time was, may you be a vizier of Salim, due to his propensity for whacking his chief advisors who displeased him. And outside the house, his campaigns were ambitious enough, though, that during his his reign, the Ottoman Empire grew significantly. And that sounds clinical, like it ate a balanced breakfast and needed a bigger size of pants in the morning. No, the neighboring lands were soaked in blood and fear. His treasury was laden. His power was astronomical. How ironic then that Salim was probably taken down by an invisible enemy at the early age of 49 after only eight years of rule, a bacteria called Yersinia pestis, bubonic plague. Or perhaps it was anthrax caught from his horses or even that he was poisoned. He certainly made enough enemies. But the sultan was dead. And now was there going to be a battle for the succession? Good news. The man we're about to connect with our subject, Hurem, had at least 10 sisters, but no surviving legitimate brothers. His brothers had all died in childhood of natural causes, question mark, or by the expert management of his own advocate slash mother, Hafsa Sultan. Oh, no. As you might have guessed by Papa's name. The Grim. This man literally looked around, didn't want a succession battle at any point, and had four of his young, young sons killed. He only kept one and put all of his resources into the one. 
I don't even know what else to say about that. But there it is. He was now an only son. Prince Suleiman had been sent as a young teen to learn how to rule in the city and province of Manisa, also called Magnesia, with his advocate slash mother and his entire household. This position, the ruler of Manisa, is almost like England's Prince of Wales. If you send a son to the training district, this means, hello, everyone in the country. This is my guy. Ideally, this is the one. In Suleiman's case, it was a done deal, of course, as he was an only son. And at 26, Suleiman succeeded his father. Suleiman arrived with his entire entourage, which included trusted advisors, servants, slaves, concubines, his mother, and her entire retinue, and Suleiman's three sons, Mahmoud, eight, Mustafa, six, and Murad, two. Suleiman's mother became Valid Sultan, a title which translates to Queen Mother. She's the boss of the harem. After her came in rank women of royal blood, aunts, sisters, daughters, if any, then women who have borne the Sultan as son, and then, you know, waving your hand, everyone else in this building. Hurem was transferred, sent, talent scouted, um, the jury's still out on that, by Suleiman's mother, they think, to her son as a candidate for his, shall we say, affection. There's no word, of course, on what Hurem thought of this at all. Whoever put Hurem in this particular situation must have seen, in addition to her physical beauty, a certain quality of intelligence and, frankly, grit. Hurem was a survivor and she knew how to get along in a hostile environment. And those are qualities that are good for a person who had to be an advocate for a future sultan. Again, as I said, this is arguably the best position to be in at court. My best position would be no power. Let me make this dinner and speak to no one. Um, I am constantly amazed at people striving for power. But in Harem's case, she had no choice. Um, even if she had been left in her village, she likely would have been married to someone much older than she is chosen by her parents with no guarantee of happiness. But at least she wouldn't have had the terror of abduction and this other layer of powerlessness. It's really not that young women, say in England, had any more freedom from this sort of specific parental manipulation. For context, I do want to say this is the year Anne Boleyn's father decided to bring her back to England to start his own schemes in this sort of way. So... It's an all skate and it's quite terrible. During Harem's 19th year, 1521, oh, this is momentous in the life of everyone around here. In the spring, the Sultan went off to besiege the city of Belgrade. Poor old Hungary was just falling apart and it was relatively easy to win. This is the first of his westward expansion battles on his way to conquer Europe. Oh, and when he returned triumphant in the fall, he discovered that... There was some terrible news. His oldest son, Mahmoud, and his third son, Murad, had both perished from an illness while he was away. But about a month later, Hurem gave birth to another little boy named Mehmed, seven years younger than his surviving brother, Mustafa. And normally that would be that. As far as the relationship between a sultan and a concubine, one son, you're responsible for his fate, really. Your journey is with your son from now on. The sultan will never see you again. Young boys until about 10 or 11 lived in the harem with the women. And later, when your son was assigned a region to govern, you went to run the women's side of his household. If you were lucky, one day your son would become the sultan and you would be able to come back as the head woman in the harem. But your job was to keep him abreast of the news using your network of uh, informers, monitor his tutors, advocate in any way for his advantage. But Suleiman kept asking for Harem. What is what is happening around here? said everyone in the harem. Harem was beautiful, yes. So are we all. Look around. Okay, she's merry and and funny and cheerful. Thus her name. Evidently she's mischievous and quite intelligent. She was kind. She was fond of the same kind of poetry and literature that the Sultan liked. I wanna say, like two nerds 
finally able to speak to someone on their level about their fandom. That's what I'm saying here. They were that kind of nerd about poetry. Some point to her ability to read and write as, quote, proof that her father had been a priest. But the harem had extensive libraries, and those who were motivated to get themselves an education could have likely gotten one. Um, Well, from here, it seems to be the development of a genuine relationship. Love, maybe. Although under the shadow of a troublesome power dynamic, Harem became pregnant again. The tension between Harem and her biggest rival, Mustafa's mother, remember the much older surviving son, started to heat up. Mahidivran, her name was. And in the Ottoman tradition, both of these sons weren't going to be able to win. Imagine looking at the other moms on the school playground, having to think about them and their kids the way Hurem and Mahidivran had to think of each other. And now Hurem was double dipping. But to Mahidivran's relief, Hurem had a daughter. Her name was Mirama. Mahidivran was relieved, but she shouldn't have been. More on Mirama later, the daughter. Um, but her papa doted on her anyway. He was delighted with his new little daughter. Is it over now, says the harem? No, he only asks for Harem, who, over the course of the next couple of years, presented her sultan with three more sons. All of the other non-parent concubines were being sold, sent away to high-ranking officials' households. Likely candidates were just diverted away. In fact, some bad actor, some sly dog, had taken the step of importing a couple of red-headed Russian slave women into the harem, and Huram went to the sultan in tears. She threw a fit, said the reporters from the Venetian embassy, but whatever. She objected to the sultan, who obediently sent them away, which means that whatever palace official thought they were going to peel her away from him by using this tactic, instead glued them closer together. It was an extraordinary situation for a sultan to be in. Remember Marie Antoinette's husband, Louis? Everyone was astonished that he didn't have a mistress, which was their cultural norm. This sultan is destroying the usual power structure. Everyone can whisper in both courts, but they can't say anything. Harem gave birth to a fifth son. So now she has six children. But I'm sorry to say that number four, Abdullah, died before his fifth birthday. Suleiman was really only gone once on a big military campaign during his children's baby years. He had tried to get a hold of Vienna from the Habsburgs, one of his very, very few losses and defeats. Um, it comes up over and over during the next few centuries. One attack from the Ottoman Empire gave us the croissant. I will provide you a link to the origin of the croissant from Vienna. And one invasion gave us the basis for that ridiculous film, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I did not remember that Uma Thurman played Venus in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I'm going to see if I can find you a link to that movie. It is chaos. The fact that this defeat was so rare, um, and it was kind of like a Hail Mary anyway, it didn't destroy his reputation at all. In fact, when he got back, sort of as a distraction and as a way to kind of say, ah, no big deal, he financed and produced a giant two-week gala in which he introduced to the country his three oldest sons. And it was time. Mahidravan was sent away. Her son Mustafa was considered old enough to be sent to rule Manisa. And now Mahidravan's job was to go with him, never to be seen again in the capital, until her son became sultan. If her son became sultan. On one hand, Haram had four sons, two Mahidravan's one, but Mustafa had just been sent to sultan prep school officially. It's like a tennis match for the whole country. It could go either way.
When Haram was 32, her mother-in-law died. The most powerful woman in the empire was gone. Almost immediately, and sort of low-key, Suleiman, in quick succession, granted Harem her freedom and then officially and legally married her. It wasn't a secret exactly. Ambassadors from several European courts couldn't wait to get back with the news that one of the most powerful rulers in the world was acting so unpredictably. And certainly the Ottoman courtiers and close family all knew But in yet another in this series of unprecedented moves, Hurem was given status over royal women by blood without being the sultan's mother. She was called the Haseki Sultan, which means the king's favorite. She was the first person to hold that official title. In practical terms and uh, pretty much according to the world, her title also meant queen consort. She received an extremely large settlement, what Europeans called a dowry, and also a generous yearly allowance. And work began to move her residence to what was then called the new palace. Remember, the the place where government happened, which had been previously completely off limits to women. But now an extensive harem complex was being integrated into its structure. As you moved further into the complex, it's like there's a VIP room after VIP room. And by the time you get to the inner VIP room, Theoretically, the only person there was the sultan. Well, the same kind of situation in parallel was happening with this harem complex, not integrated as a co-ed facility with the gentleman, but within the complex as a separate entity. She traveled from palace to palace inside of a very recognizable litter covered with curtains and a bit of an entourage. And although they couldn't see her face, the knowledge of her progress from palace to palace became a sight to see. And you know what this reminds me of? I was so struck when I read that. And I don't know how many of you went deeper into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series and read a book called The Horse and His Boy. Um, where in the city of Kalorman, noble women would travel the streets in covered litters and bearers ahead of them would yell, way, way for the Tarkina Lazarline, and everyone would have to get out of the way. I'm pretty sure it was based on the Ottoman Empire without verification, but that's just what I was thinking of is these vehicles gilded and jeweled would go down the street and everyone would have to kind of jump for the edge. Europeans could actually understand this. Okay, the sultan now has a queen consort. Well, this queen consort began to be referred to in European circles as Roxalana. It is either a reference to her purported birthplace in Ruthenia. Um, Ruthenia and Roxalana have a similar etymology or origin that I don't begin to understand and can't explain. Or some also say it refers to her red hair. And I have Roths in my background. And part of the theory on where that name comes from is redheads also. (laughs) So her name could either be location or uh, personal appearance. So if you look her up, sometimes you will see her referred to as Roxalana. But within the Ottoman Empire, she was always Horem Sultan or Hasiki Sultan. Why the marriage, though? Why did he take this additional step? Well, it might have been security for her because in the absence of her mother-in-law and her husband, who had to take off to control his neighbors in Persia, um, Iran, and he needed to give her the security of an official position before he left. Maybe in case he didn't come back. What a scary position that would be. You're like a sitting duck in there if your husband gets killed and Mahid Iran's people could just come fetch you. So um, perhaps he needed to give her a little bit of force of law. So he's gone. And Haram was the highest ranking woman in the empire. And the highest ranking woman in the empire can gather a giant network of women from noble families, as we've talked about both before in this episode and also in the Lady Mary Wortley Montague episode. Wives and sisters and daughters of prominent men kept themselves informed of world events and were highly educated and politically quite astute. 
So Harem had in her household a powerful and widespread engine of knowledge that was constantly underestimated, both by Europe and the menfolk of the Ottoman Empire. Vast networks, including servants, eunuchs, their own male relatives on the outside, and quite awesomely, These intrepid employees, usually Jewish women, were hired who were not subject to the same restrictions as a woman of the court to go in public. They could not only run errands, big and small, in the public eye from meeting with monument builders to delivering a message, but were sometimes sent all the way to foreign countries to gather information, even what the progress was on a battlefield. Harem's assistant was called Strongilia. Um, inherited as an employee from her mother-in-law, later ennobled and given a title. And even, I say, a fictionalized movie about one of these women would be quite a good story. I don't know that I could come up with enough for an entire episode, but, but what a life. Somebody write a book. It was forbidden to write of Harem by everyone, um, considered unseemly to drag the Haseki's name into a common letter, even by their son Mehmed, who as a young teenager was already participating in strategy meetings and was one of his father's most trusted correspondents from the capital. So he, Suleiman, eagerly awaited her letters to him because she's the only one that could write of herself, full of Longing for his return, city news, complaints about the cost of contractors. Ah, that's very wifely. The health of the children, everything you'd expect a long married couple to write. But often there would be poetry. How about this from the Sultan to his Empress consort? And I quote, my solitude, my everything, my beloved, my gleaming moon, my companion, my intimate, my all, lord of beauties, my sultan, my life's essence and span, my sip from the river of paradise, my Eden, my springtime, my happiness, my pleasure, lantern in my gathering, my luminous star, my candle, my pharaoh in the Egypt of the heart. That's just an excerpt of a poem he sent to Harem from the battlefield. So, you know, whatever it once was, I do think he's in love. And that would explain a lot. You know, over in England right now, King Henry VIII is upturning centuries of religion and tradition in order to marry Anne Boleyn. So kings in love can do amazing and sometimes terrible things. So Suleiman had just captured the city of Baghdad. It was a giant triumph. He also pushed the boundaries of the empire ever further. And when he came back in triumph, after a year and a half away, he pushed some more boundaries. He had a glorious combined celebration of victory and marriage. Now the marriage has gone super public and... The Venetian ambassador wrote back, This week there occurred in the city a most extraordinary event, unprecedented in the history of the sultans. The Grand Signor Suleiman has taken as wife a slave woman, and no one can say what it means. Everyone's like, Baghdad, hooray, what? What happened? The army in particular were taken aback. What does this mean? They were full of consternation. The Janissaries in particular, remember them, the most powerful elite force in the army, were antagonistic. They favored Mustafa, who is not Harem's son. So what did this mean? Did the Sultan mean to bypass the son who'd proven himself in battle? It was not good for a powerful man to be so enthrall to a woman, which seemed to be the overarching theme within the empire. Some began to call Harim a witch. Obviously, she'd use dark forces, poison or dark magic. What else could explain it? Her own 14-year-old son had been invited to strategy meetings to be the figurehead at home while his father was away. Are we seeing a slow-motion coup around here? And then another ripple of shock went through the empire by the order of the sultan, and with no warning, the grand vizier was killed in the palace. Um, This vizier had also been a slave and he had grown up with Suleiman and had been given extraordinary responsibility and power. 
So you're, you've got a precedent of a king's favorite who had been a slave, just achieving by dint of personality and relationship, a level of influence they probably shouldn't have had, according to the society. He was so close to him, like Henry VIII's friend Charles Brandon, if you remember him. The higher up nobility thinks both of these men, Charles Brandon and the Grand Vizier, had too much influence on the king for someone so lowborn, you know. Unfortunately, the Vizier had a reputation for calling himself Sultan. Um, that implies you're a member of the family. Also, he would imply that Suleiman was a nitwit figurehead. I'm paraphrasing. And he may have been backing Mustafa over any of Harem's children and Mahidavran, the mother, over Harem herself. Now, a lot of the blame for the vizier's death now rests on Harem. At the time, though, not really, except if you want to criticize the sultan, you have to just hit his people. The word on the street at the time gave no blame to her, rather to the vizier's mismanagement and greed. But maybe Harem's information network passed on the information that was key to his downfall. That I could certainly say was true. And also, can I please remind you that his father, Salim, was notorious for killing grand viziers? It's not like everyone was shocked and awed that this has never happened before. I'm just saying. So the vizier was not only the one to perish this year at the wishes of their king. Anne Boleyn was executed this year in England and Henry VIII married Jane Seymour only 11 days later. If the 1500s only had Twitter, my, all they had was the Venetian ambassador, who seemed to be pretty good, actually, for his time at, you know, telephone, telegraph, telling ambassador. While all of this drama was going on in the background, Harem was working on another project that would break yet more traditions and societal norms. And so she sets out to sort of continue a tradition of royal women throughout the Ottoman Empire, that of charitable institutions. And she decides to break a little tradition and turn it up to 11. Instead of quietly pursuing her philanthropy in outposts throughout the empire, as the precedent had been set, she decided to begin her project with the construction of a mosque right in the middle of the capital. She's the first woman to have begun what they call a foundation, which is sort of a collection of um, buildings with different purposes. But she started hers right in the middle of Istanbul. She chose an underserved area of the city. Ultimately, this complex would serve as a community hub. There were schools, a public water supply, hostels, a hospital. Um, it became a magnet for this neighborhood of about 30,000 people. It provided jobs. Think of it as a giant stimulus package and improved the neighborhood greatly and also, incidentally, provided Haram with the goodwill of the city. This kind of municipal project, conceived of and promoted by women, has a long history. And um, I just think we forgot to mention that during the Jane Addams podcast. Harem became known for her philanthropy. Throughout her life, in different areas of the empire, she created quite a footprint, from shrines, hostels for pilgrims in the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, to another major complex in the city of Jerusalem itself. Graduates of the schools that she founded went on to become prominent men in the empire and owed their education to her generosity. In addition, women that she had taken into the harem to educate and train were often married to these prominent men and thus harem, having lots of people who had reason to be grateful for her, enlarged her network of information and frankly, her influence, her circle of power. Suleiman, no slouch himself, was busy on a project he wanted to complete that one of his ancestors had tried to do a hundred years before, before he was distracted by war. And that is to change the structure of law in the empire. So he embarked on a project 
of standardizing the laws throughout the empire. You know, really, it had been acquired extraordinarily piecemeal since its very existence. But now the far reaches and the center were acting quite differently. And so to smooth things out, he instituted a standardized law throughout the empire. So while Europe and the world and probably how you learned about him in history class refers to him as Suleiman the Magnificent, In his own country, he was known as Suleiman the Lawgiver, which is way better than his father's Salim the Grim. In addition, he also decentralized certain functions of the government to allow things to adapt to the changing nature of the empire. He was becoming a more modern monarch. And I read somewhere a theory that he was looking around at his compatriots here in Europe And perhaps that is why he chose this model of marriage also. It was definitely an era of the educated noblewoman all over Europe. We talked about that during the Elizabeth One podcast. And his wife, also a very educated woman and quite intelligent and good at political acumen, was invaluable to him in this regard. She was his most trusted advisor. She also began correspondence with royalty in Poland, the land of her birth. Remember, Ruthenia is in modern day Ukraine, but at the time it was the king of Poland who ruled over the land of her birth. Imagine that, a village girl rising to be a peer of King Sigismund the Old of Poland and Queen Bonus Forza of a powerful Italian family. Harem's correspondence with these notables seems to be the key to the diplomatic relations the Ottoman Empire had with that country. What's more, Harem acted through her husband to ensure that the eldest daughter of her friend, Bonus Forza, was installed as regent for her infant son in Hungary. The Habsburgs tried to remove this Isabella, but Suleiman is like, put her back. Or I'm coming with my dudes to make you put her back. The people of Hungary are like, dear Isabella, please come back. (laughs) Terrible mistake. Hope you have no hard feelings, etc. Maybe someday we'll cover Isabella of Hungary, but we would need one of those crime show bulletin boards with the red ribbon connecting everyone. She, of all people, lived in interesting times. But it is Harem through Suleiman that got her put back on her throne. And so it was time for Haram's oldest son, Mehmed, to go out into the field and start to train as a ruler. And weirdly for everyone, her second son, Salim, was deployed at the same time to another district. Well, uh, okay, so which one is Haram going to go to? Whose household will she manage? Psyche. In an unprecedented move, uh, well, it's already unprecedented that one mother would even have two candidates on the field. Um, But guess what? She is staying with the sultan at his request. Ooh, she's blowing people's mind right and left. And I'm reminded of Eleanor of Aquitaine managing multiple sons' careers. That's where she is. Ultimately, Haram would have a third son in play, her fifth child, Bayezid. Now, her youngest son, Jongish, was considered ineligible to be given any role in government due to his disability, but became the close companion and friend of his father. And Jongish once joked to his father, well, at least I'll escape the extermination after you die because I'm so unimportant. And Papa's reaction was, don't count on it. Mustafa will become sultan and he'll kill all of you. Let's go to lunch. Like this family. I mean, this family. It was just considered just how it is that whoever wins is going to commit giant amounts of fratricide. And that's just what happens. Sure hope your brother that loves you wins. But even then, you're probably going to be dead. And I love you.
And so Haram's beloved oldest son, Mehmed, apple of his mother's eye and pretty open favorite of his father, is off ruling in his own principality without his mother in an unusual move, you know. Get this, though. During the decision-making process... Um, just ahead of when Memhet was about to go out on his rounds or to his first posting, Suleiman displaced his eldest son, Mustafa, and sent him to another district, leaving the Plum Post, you know, the Prince of Wales location, Manisa, open, curiously. And so when Memhet was about to go out, He was assigned to the prize location, and I can only imagine the rage in Mustafa's heart. But what can you do? What can you do? Your father is openly preferring your younger brother in basically a contest to the death. So he is no ally in your Hunger Games. You're going to have to go on your own. About a year and a half into this situation, some horrible news came to Mehmet's parents. Their son, their favorite son, the one that Suleiman pretty openly intended should follow him in the line of succession, had been struck down and killed, likely of smallpox. At the age of only 21, Sultan Suleiman cried over his son for hours and hours before he would allow him to be buried. He dressed in black not for the traditional three days, but he extended the mourning to 40 days, and everyone in the court wore black for that period of time. In another unprecedented move, a tomb was constructed for their son within the capital rather than in the outskirts in the province traditionally reserved for princely burials. And the grandness of scale of this tomb was also quite unprecedented. A memorial mosque was attached to it. The Venetian ambassador spoke of the regret and grief of this family, referring to, quote, the exceptional love that Mehmed's fortune-favored mother and illustrious father felt for him in their hearts. But it wasn't just his family. He said that all who knew the prince loved him for his graciousness, comeliness, and habits, being by nature as he was humane and generous. Now, I am sorry to say that this must have been great news for Mustafa. Hooray! But in a blow to Mustafa's self-esteem slash prospects, his papa, Sultan Suleiman, shifted his next son by Harem, Salim, into the training district and displaced Mustafa. We're still on this battle And for about eight more years, Salim grew as the second thorn in Mustafa's side, the brother who had usurped his place in Manisa, even though his father said, oh no, I just need you out north um, to protect me from invaders. It was like a pretty clear insult. Now, this is the thing that Harem is possibly most famous slash infamous for. When Harem was 51, and I'd like to repeat, this is all speculation, this is rumor, this is how history has painted it, there was a conspiracy engineered by Harem, her daughter Mirama, and her daughter's husband, who was by now the new Grand Vizier. Here's how the story goes. During a battle in Persia, that's the old enemy in modern-day Iran, Rostem Pasha, the Grand Vizier, the son-in-law of Harem, approached Prince Mustafa with a message purportedly from his father, the Sultan. Please come bring your army and join forces with me. I need you. Oh, said Mustafa, no problem. Tell him we're on our way. We'll get our crap together. Be with you shortly. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. And then Rustin Pasha, the vizier, hurried back to the Sultan and warned him, your oldest son is coming with his army to kill you. Now, this literally had happened to the sultan's grandpa. You know, it's not unheard of that a son would violently depose his father. But Suleiman was shocked and angry. Well, you know, let's see. He's probably not coming. And sure enough, though, here comes his oldest son with an army right into the sultan's camp. The sultan ordered his oldest son to be killed. And the second Mustafa came into his father's tent, the guards strangled him. 
Oh my goodness, that set shock and unrest through the land. Large portions of the empire had regarded Mustafa as the future sultan for decades. Over the course of history, much of the blame falls on Haram and Rustam Pasha. Um, the sultan sort of gets a free pass on this, but I would like to ask you seriously, I cannot imagine he wasn't involved. He's a wise man. He's a master tactician. I just don't know what to think about this. So Suleiman did give his eldest son a state funeral. Mahidavran's hopes for her only son were, of course, over, and she went into exile um, slash retirement. I'm sorry to say she struggled financially for a long time, and um, for many years, her servants were mocked in the streets, etc. There's like no mercy for that whole side of what was, after all, the same family. So the sultan did strip Rustin Pasha of his viziership, at least temporarily. But the deed was done. The enemy of her sons, that sword that had been hanging over their heads since before they were born, was gone. Now, in broader terms, from sources at the time, Suleiman might have been losing some clout to his oldest son, who was enormously popular with the military and the populace under the expert guidance of his mother, Mahidavan. Mustafa was an expert warrior king. The climate, though, politically may have been changing. The empires on both sides of the Ottoman Empire were sort of stabilizing. Um, and what you needed was more of an orderly succession because with a power vacuum, those neighbors had an opportunity to strike and undo all the work that sultans had done for the past three reigns. Now, can I please tell you, I'm sorry to say that Prince Mustafa's little son who had fled with his mother at the news of Mustafa's death was hunted down and strangled. No rivals remain. That's the rule. And Mustafa is not buried in Istanbul, as his favored brother Mehmed was, but in the traditional resting place of royalty in the provinces. I'm also sorry to say that another tragedy struck the family right afterward. Weeks after his brother's assassination, Harem's youngest son, Jongish, died not as has been marketed of shock or grief at his brother's murder, but the health issues that had plagued him his whole life and had made him so beloved of his mother and his father. Rumors of a death circulated about and everyone assumed it was the sultan who had died and the Janissaries traditionally looted between sultans. So everything they could take during this interregnum, they could keep. And the sultan had to come out and go, nope, whoa, 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 it's not me. I'm still here. I'm still alive. Put all the stuff back. And they had to literally take everything back that they had taken. Can you imagine Vikings running through and taking a bunch of stuff and then <laughs> reaching the edge of town and someone's like, actually, no, please um, put all that back. I just, <laughs> I think it's a mark of the power of what had usually been tradition in this country that they would put the things back. So it makes Harem's and Suleiman's kind of fracturing of tradition even more clear to me how much of a shock that was, you know, that they had defied traditions this badly when the Janissaries were so meek in getting rid of their treasure. So out and about, there was a person who was claiming to be the royal prince Mustafa. I'm still alive. Ha ha. You executed my body double. And his youngest brother, Bayezid, had to ride out and take names. Master tactician Suleiman really thought his son Bayezid had manufactured this fake Mustafa in order to uh, stir up conflict. Over the course of the next few years, um, Bayezid became the new favorite of the military as he was brave in battle and willing to take risks and um, in general be a loose cannon. So Harem had a problem. Even in her marital household, there were some differing opinions. Two sons, Salim and Bayezid, on the battlefield right now, the potential future battlefield. And as mother, she wanted everyone to be safe. So can we please break protocol again? Maybe divide the empire, maybe make one a subsidiary to his brother after a contest in the sultan? Even though he was both of their father, he wanted stability, stability in the empire after he was gone. What had he been working for? He had signed peace treaties with some neighbors and we need to lock this up. 
we can't do that. I'm so sorry. So tensions grew over the next few years, especially between Bayezid and his father. Um, his father never really got over what he considered to be that tactic of creating the fake Mustafa to... Um, kind of muddy the waters of the succession. In the end, one of her sons was going to lose this battle. Both of them had sons. So a whole family of grandsons was for the chop. Are any of you a grandma? Imagine this scenario. One of your family of grandchildren is going to succeed and the rest will be killed by their cousins. Typically, you know, this did not come up in the Ottoman Empire. The one and done son plan was maybe showing its virtues here because previous sultans and concubines didn't have this moral dilemma hanging over their head. So it is maybe a blessing that Hurem missed the end game. Her health began to fail and she worked hard, hard, hard to finish a lot of her philanthropic enterprises, but it was clear that she was not going to recover. Ambassadors to the court at this time noted that the sultan had aged dramatically, that he was distracted by grief, couldn't take anything in, and had promised his wife he would never again look at another woman. And Hurem Sultan died on April 15th, 1558, at the age of only 56. Her coffin was carried to her grave by viziers, and ultimately an elaborate tomb had been constructed for her. And Suleiman was never the same. Now, it's like their mother's death spurred the sons to action. And Sultan Suleiman had to separate them geographically. Um, he strategically placed them equidistant from the capital. It was thought that once he died, the very first son to get to the capital was going to win. Um, both of them raised armies and went to battle with each other the year after Harem died. Bayezid lost and fled next door to Iran with four of his five sons. And brace yourself for this. Suleiman paid ransom for them, and the ruler of Iran handed all of them over. And I'm sorry to say, right after the handoff, all five of them were strangled by the order of the sultan. The coldness of this kills me. But the sultan thought, well, Bayezid lost. He should have taken his consequences. They were all denied honorable burial, believe it or not, because they had fled. And then the sultan's people went out and found the baby, the last son, the one that hadn't fled to Iran, and killed him too. So Harem's son Salim was the last man standing, and their daughter Mirama became her father's counselor and companion until his death in 1566. Suleiman died at the battlefield, but not on the battlefield, if that makes sense. He died of natural causes in Hungary just before an Ottoman victory, kind of the last gasp of his warrior nature, and his heart was removed from his body and buried separately and promptly disappeared. Although, and I'll link you to an article, they think they have a lead on where it is in its wooden box and people are on the hunt for it. So Selim became the undisputed sultan and... I have to say, he did something really good right at the outset. He provided financially for poor Mahidravan, Mustafa's mother. He lifted her out of poverty. He reclaimed her royal status. Her tormentors were punished. Um, he had a tomb built for her son, Mustafa, that hadn't been built before. And that is how he began his reign with an act of unexpected benevolence. Harem's legacy boils down to strange and everlasting breaking of some very important norms. She created the role of Empress Consort in the Ottoman Empire. She also created its proximity to power, both physically through the harem having moved to the new palace and diplomatically by the way that she used her network and contacts and her influence over the sultan and his reliance on her as a trusted advisor. In fact, for a hundred years after Harem's death, the Ottoman Empire's um, distaff side of the government was called the Sultanate of Women. 
her successors in the role of queen consort corresponded with the likes of Queen Elizabeth I of England and also with Catherine de' Medici. She set the bar extraordinarily high for philanthropy, which benefited all of the people of the Ottoman Empire. Sultan Suleiman and Harem Sultan, by their very willingness to defy tradition, moved the Ottoman Empire further into the modern age. They set a pattern for flexibility in government, allowing the Ottoman Empire to flex and change as politics changed around them. The Ottoman Empire was not dissolved until 1922. And that will bring us to the end of the life of Harem Sultan, or Empress Roxalana. So let me start with books. The premier book that I used was called Empress of the East, How a Slave Girl Became Queen of the Ottoman Empire by Leslie Pierce. That's really the preeminent biography. Um, however, I found the biography of Suleiman the Magnificent by Andre Klott to be illuminating for both background and the relationship between Suleiman and Harem. Also, there is a book by Halil Inalchik called The Ottoman Empire, The Classic Age, 1300 to 1600, which sounds like a textbook and <laughs> might well have been, but I really liked it. You know me and my Hermione nature. Also, a book called A History of the Ottoman Empire by Douglas A. Howard. In 1561, right after Hurem Sultan died, a man named Gabriel Bunin, who is from France, wrote a play um, called La Sultan. And of course, it's based on rumor and excitement. Um, you can get the text of the play La Sultan. It was recently, as recently as... I think 2015 was reissued. So um, so you can read the play that was written about Haram's responsibility for Mustafa's death. And then um, on Amazon Prime right now, there is a documentary called Suleiman the Magnificent. And I believe it is free with a subscription. And the thing I can't track down for you. Okay. There is a, I'm struggling to even call it a mini-series because there's 139 episodes. It's called Magnificent Century, and it's basically the Turkish Tudors. In fact, if you go on um, justwatch.com, which is actually a good resource, you can find where something that you want to watch is streaming. Just use the search function. But at Just Watch, they can't find anywhere um, that it is available for streaming um, but it recommends if you like Magnificent Century, you'll love the Tudors. So, you know, you can get a feel for what it's like. You can find so many clips on YouTube, however. And obviously they did a great job. It was very, very popular. I'll provide you links to um, an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum. An explanation of how we got croissants from the later Ottoman Empire menacing Vienna and a couple of articles about Suleiman and also the quest for Suleiman's lost heart. In addition, I will give you the website to the Top Copy Palace, which is, of course, the, quote, new palace of Harem's day. And never forget the classic resource for rabbit holes, the Pinterest board at the History Chicks. And in closing... Harem Sultan was remembered for her meteoric rise from enslaved captive to empress and as the advisor and true love of one of the most powerful men in the world. Remembered also for her extraordinary philanthropy, her diplomatic and political acumen, and the change her life had wrought on the entire empire. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. I would challenge you, if you haven't yet listened to the back catalog, to find a woman you've never heard of and give her a listen and let us know what you think. Also, 
I would just like to say hello to Susan, who I anticipate should be back by the next episode, but you can probably find her on Twitter at the History Chicks with an X. She would love to hear from you. The song in the middle is Fail and Face Erasure. I couldn't have been more specific by Harper Active. And the song at the end is Delicate by Joey Feirenbach. See you next time. <laughs>